recalibrating. Release for drop. From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm a Jaeger. He's a Kaiju. I think that's pretty obvious. But we'll get to that battle a little later on as we discuss Guillermo del Toro's new film, Pacific Rim, which is currently in theaters and has been for a couple of weeks. We're a little late to the party, but we honestly don't care. We've been really waiting to talk about this movie. But there are a few other things we should address before we get to that, namely the news since we've recorded, which was a while back, that in, I believe, 2015, as has been announced by Warner Brothers, there will be a Batman Superman movie. So as we've talked about, I think off mic before Corey, it's time to make some big decisions with Batman if you're Warner Brothers. And rushing a Justice League movie has a lot of fans concerned right now. But if they're going to do it with Superman already in tow, having released The Man of Steel this year and Christopher Nolan's story already told, where do you go with Batman? What do you do? Obviously, now that they've announced that there will be a Batman-Superman movie in 2015, that suggests that we won't get a solo Batman movie before that. At least they haven't announced that. So you got to cast Batman now. And this is a big step that they have to make because they're coming off of this gargantuan franchise that Christopher Nolan gave them over the past eight years or so that culminated in The Dark Knight Rises and finished that story as Nolan wanted to tell it. So that continuity is dead now, so you have to essentially start fresh. So if you're Warner Brothers, and if you're one of the powers that be, and if you're in that think tank and brainstorming what to do with Batman as you get ready to make this movie, where do you start? Well, evidently they've made the decision to fold a new version of Batman into the Man of Steel continuity. This is, for all intents and purposes, a Man of Steel sequel immediately following, I presume, the events of that film with Zack Snyder returning to direct, with David Goyer returning to write, and with the character of Bruce Wayne being folded into this larger DC universe that was initiated in Man of Steel. Now, you know, based on the last show, that I don't feel that strongly about Man of Steel as a film. I I didn't like it all that much, but it's hard to argue that it didn't set up some interesting places for a sequel to go creatively after the half-destruction of Metropolis and, and the announcement of Superman to the world as the sort of alien protector. Well, one thing that really worries me is that DC, in their haste to make some of that Marvel money, is throwing superheroes into this Man of Steel sequel just for commercial purposes. I'm unconvinced that creatively throwing Bruce Wayne into an already sort of convoluted, potentially heavy sequel storyline is really the best thing to do for reestablishing that character and sort of getting Superman back on his feet as a viable franchise leader. Because frankly, Man of Steel, though it has made about $300 million domestic, not the home run that Warner Brothers was looking for exactly as far as a, a franchise starter. It's made a good bit of bank, but I think that they wanted something else. When you compare it to the Marvel movies, and particularly the success of something like Iron Man 3 this year, it's not really what they were looking for. So throwing Batman into the mix will get people salivating. It'll get people into the theater. But again, I question if that's really the correct creative direction. 
And if they're trying to mimic the model that Marvel had with the Avengers, it started with Iron Man. And mm-hmm. in this case, you would have to say that Man of Steel is what they're relying on as their Iron Man right. to sort of jumpstart this new universe and this new continuity. But we all know that Batman is their number one guy. Yeah. And it's hard to believe that they wouldn't start there, if nothing else. Because, I mean, Batman is the sole property that, at this point, they can probably rely on mm-hmm. more than anything. So, like you said, it's interesting that they would just drop Batman men and Bruce Wayne into this universe that they've established with enough success at this point. So it's hard to believe that it's just going to mesh not only with fans, but obviously with box office, especially similar box office to Marvel, which is what they're competing with and what they're trying to recreate. Well, and in 2015, it's going to be going up against The Avengers 2, another Star Wars film and God knows what else in 2015. That year's packed already. So you're a big DC fan. Are you worried about this? I mean, a lot of people... I mean, honestly, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So Batman-wise, if we're talking about casting, if we're talking about throwing somebody into this universe, you have to think about what's the right age, what's the right kind of actor. We can't make it just like the Nolan version of Batman. Mm -hmm. We have to get as far away from that as possible, even though Christopher Nolan was so heavily involved with The Man of Steel, which just came out. Where do you start again if you're talking about from just a strictly narrative standpoint? Well, you know, they just did another Superman origin story with Man of Steel, and my you know big concern, and I don't think that they'll do this, but never say never is if they try to shoehorn another Batman origin story into this Man of Steel sequel. Well, you have to, don't you? Well, not necessarily. You can have Bruce Wayne already as his established character and Batman already a figure in this universe's city of Gotham. Sort of like Burton's first Batman film. You just drop in while the superhero is already acting like the superhero. But the question is, how does that mesh really with this world that they've already created where you have superhuman alien figures pulverizing cities. Yeah, well, in this nearly decade-long age of superhero movies and the sort mm-hmm. of resurgence of and in reestablishment of superhero movies as sort of the driving force of Hollywood, uh-huh. nothing suggests to me that there won't be an origin story. It seems like all over most of these stories in these films have depended on telling these stories from the beginning yeah. and establishing, or in many cases, reestablishing these characters. So I'm with you. I, I would love to see that if they just threw Batman in and we hopped in the middle of his adventures or one of his adventures, be it in a Batman Superman movie or just a Batman movie in general like Burton did, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a terrible mistake. Truthfully, I I don't think the world needs another Batman origin story. It will be a decade after Batman begins at that point when that movie comes out. I don't know. I I just, I'm fearful for for this project. It's hard to argue that it's motivated by anything but economics. Well, that's a quick buck, though. I mean, yeah. if you're talking long-term investment, you're right. this seems I mean, like the wrong approach to this franchise. Yeah. Before we move on, though, to the next topic, if you're casting Batman right now, Ugh. who do you cast? Well, I think they're going to go for some young guy. I think that's the wrong approach. Liam Hemsworth? Yeah, no, <laughs> don't don't go with Liam Hemsworth. You know they're going to pick somebody like that. But, though. you know, I read, I read a suggestion online that I can't get out of my head now just because... This actor has recent experience acting with only below his nose on his face, wearing a mask. Carl Urban. Carl Urban, huh? Yeah. Okay, well... I think that's a really good choice. Who knows? Yeah, who knows what will happen. But, I mean, you're talking about also casting somebody who has marketability. Yeah. And in the past, 
they've always cast a celebrity, somebody who ha- is established as Bruce Wayne and Batman, which is the opposite case of Superman, yeah. where they've always cast unknowns. So it surprised me if they got somebody like Carl Urban instead of a Channing Tatum or somebody who oh, has man. A-list status at this point. But I'm not one who wants to see a Channing Tatum Batman, but it might be the direction that we're moving into. So you were just a few minutes removed from finally watching the Secret Life of Walter Mitty trailer. Yeah which is this film that has been in development hell for years, it seems, uh, decades maybe, where you've had names like Jim Carrey and Steven Spielberg and Ron Howard, Will Ferrell, Owen Wilson, several names attached to this project, and it just hasn't been able to get off the ground Mm -hmm. and into actual production and into movie theaters. But finally, Ben Stiller has rolled into it and taken on directing duties and starring duties. And this movie has a trailer now. It's made, and it'll be in theaters Christmas Day. So again, this took long enough to get made. We know that Ben Stiller can definitely direct. Well, how does this look to you, having just watched it a few minutes ago? Well, it looks surprisingly visually ambitious for Ben Stiller. Not that Tropic Thunder and Zoolander are bad-looking movies exactly, but I, I don't think that the scope of what's presented in this trailer was something I necessarily expected. I think the screenplay is written by Stephen Conrad, who is probably best known for writing The Pursuit of Happiness, but also wrote two excellent dark little gems, The Promotion and The Weatherman with Nicolas Cage. I liked both of those movies a lot. And, you know, the trailer has this surprisingly melancholy-seeming tone that's in keeping with those films from from the screenwriter. The sort of twee indie pop song over the trailer, though, has me worried a little bit. I'm not really sure exactly what the final tone of this movie is going to be. You've got, like, Adam Scott looking like Ellis from Die Hard appearing to be this cartoonish sort of corporate villain and i don't think that the finished film will be as restrained or as uh self-serious as it seems to look yeah I guess Ben Stiller as a director has control of of his tones in in the films that he's made. I mean, I don't really know. I don't really have a handle on this trailer apart from what it appears to be doing visually, which took me aback, to be honest. I agree with you because, I mean, you look at his other four movies that he's directed, Reality Bites, Cable Guy, Zoolander, and we've mentioned Tropic Thunder. Uh Those are really fun movies, in many cases really funny, and but they aren't exactly what you would call these visual marvels or right. anything, or visually ambitious. This, to me, looks kind of like a Super Bowl ad, hmm. or just like a just extremely sharply shot television ad. Do you know who shot this movie? Didn't recognize their names, but I hear there were two directors of photography uh-huh. on the project. One guy quit, reportedly, because Ben Stiller and he had creative differences, and so somebody took over in the mm-hmm. middle of it. So I don't know their names, though. They didn't register with okay. me when I'd done it. But uh, yeah, like you said, it looks visually ambitious, and that's something to at least get a little excited about, to see that Ben Stiller is actually trying for something. He's going for something, and this cast is interesting with Kristen Wiig, Adam Scott, Shirley MacLaine, Patton Oswald on board, and Sean Penn, who has a bit yeah. role in this trailer and probably one of the cooler visual gags mm-hmm. of the movie. But I just hope it doesn't take itself too seriously. This is a story that seems ripe for silliness, and with guys like Jim Carrey and Will Ferrell, and now Ben Stiller, and we know his track record as a comedic actor on board, it seems like something that is meant 
for a silly performer and obviously versatile performer. We know that Ben Stiller is a versatile guy. We've seen mm-hmm. his, you know, not only his performances in films, but on the Ben Stiller show, we know that he can take on many different roles. But something to keep an eye on for sure. Jasmine, oh my God, look at you. <laughs> Your place is homey. Oh, the flight was bumpy. The food was awful. I mean, you'd think first class. I, I thought you were tapped out. I'm dead broke. Really, I mean, the government took everything. All I can say is you look great. Oh, now who's lying? (laughs) Blue Jasmine is getting really strong buzz. Mm -hmm. The reviews are all out, and it currently sits at 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, so people are really high on it. Plenty of people calling it Woody's Best in Years, even better than Midnight in Paris, which people adored, and it was nominated for multiple Oscars, won in Best Screenplay. I feel like with every movie he releases, though, there's at least one guy who's like, it's Woody's return to form. Right. Well, and Kate Blanchett is being named a strong player in the Oscar race at this point, mm-hmm. even though it's in the middle of the year. But Woody Allen's movies have had really strong legs, even when they're released fairly early in the year or in the latter part of the summer. We were already excited about this and encouraged by the trailer. Does the reception sway you one way or the other? Yep. Really? Yep. So the anticipation just goes up. I mean, it was already pretty high, yeah. but I can't wait until this opens in my city. It has become, I can't wait till I can drive potentially 200 miles to see this, which I probably won't do, but I am very, very excited for this one. Just all of the responses it's gotten already, people talking about how great the cast is, and it's one of Alan's more unusual casts in recent years. All of this has gotten me just extremely excited for it. Me too. Can't wait. The strong buzz has me pumped for it. I was already pumped for it to see him sort of revert back to these female-centric Yeah films that he made mainly in the 80s it seems the movie alice springs to mind Mm -hmm. with uh, a lot of people comparing this one to that one a lot of people comparing this to streetcar named desire too and tossing out plenty of references a lot has already been written about this and i've actually refrained from reading most of it just Mm -hmm. because i don't want to know anything going into it someone who's recommended it to my brother who lives up in new york city where this is playing in several theaters has said don't read anything don't know anything going into it Mm -hmm. so i'm extremely excited about it we're excited about all woody allen films but the positive buzz surrounding this one really puts the nail in the coffin. I've been wanting to do this for a while, but I kind of want to go back and revisit his filmography. It's been a while. It's been since college since I've done that and gone through it, but um, there are several of his movies that I'm interested in revisiting. What would you say, if you were to go back and revisit his movies, are there any sort of blind spots or movies that you feel like deserve a second viewing from you? Obviously, September. That was one that I just kind of watched just to watch it so I could say I've seen them all. Uh It was kind of like the last on the list until I saw the next one. I think that might have been the last one I saw too. Yeah. So, but again, I'd like to watch Another Woman again, which I know that this is being compared to. I I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. And it's so short too. It's only like 80 minutes long. But those two spring to mind. A lot of the 80s stuff, yeah. for sure. For me, it's two of his more acclaimed movies that I didn't really take a shine to the first time I saw them. Actually, three of them. People all seem to like Stardust Memories, Husbands and Wives, and Deconstructing Harry a lot more than I did. So I'd definitely like to go back and watch those three again in particular and see what I missed or if Star- I missed anything. Stardust Memories and Husbands and Wives, for me, are probably top fivers. Really? Woody Allen wise. Yeah, see, I for whatever reason... Didn't do it for didn't you? Didn't do it for well, me. Well, I'll tell you what, another one that didn't do it for you, I rewatched this weekend, and it was just as brilliant as ever. Has some of his best writing, bar none, for my money... In his entire career, it's Cassandra's Dream from 2008, the better of the two Woody Allen movies that came out that year. It's incredible, Corey. I mean, the performances from Ewan McGregor and Colin Farrell are brilliant, arguably their two best performances in their whole careers. Mm -hmm. 
Go back and watch it. Okay. I'm I'll telling it. you, it is awesome. I've got them. I can just throw them on. I'll I'll throw that on. Do it. Do it. Might as well. And you got to be excited that Sally Hawkins is reteaming. Oh, definitely. And she's the, hilarious in this. And this is when like Sally Hawkins was not yet really Sally Hawkins. I think that was the same year that Happy Go Lucky came out. I think Happy Go Lucky came out later that year. Yeah. Which is another movie I need to revisit because I didn't care too much for that either and louis ck's in it man oh i know i Insane. just watched his latest uh, stand-up show on hbo it's awesome yeah it's really funny yeah super pumped gypsy danger report to bay 08 kaiju category three pilot to pilot connection engage gentlemen your orders are to protect the city of two million people or splash grind 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 <laughs> grind 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 smash kaboom there gypsy danger otachi fight alien life they came from deep beneath the pacific the first made land in san francisco if you want to stop them you have to understand them their sole purpose was to aim for the populated areas and take out the vermin us or we could just blow into pieces the jaeger program was born. Two pilots, mind melding through memories with the body of a machine. 2,500 tons of awesome. We started winning. Then it all changed. Pacific Rim is out. It's been out for a couple of weeks. It's, I wouldn't say underperforming necessarily at the box office, even though something like The Conjuring, which is from the same studio, is outperforming it right now. You would say under. But the reason I would say no is even though this costs $190 million mm. reportedly to make, which is an obscene number for an original movie yeah. like this, which is from scratch, from the mind of... Guillermo del Toro and his co-screenwriter, remind me his name? Travis Beecham. It's always a gamble to risk that yeah. much money on an original idea. This isn't an existing property that people can recall or revisit prior to this film's release. Well, especially from somebody like Guillermo del Toro, too, who's you know forays into mainstream filmmaking you've got blade 2 which did respectably and the hellboy movies which hellboy 1 did okay and hellboy 2 was notoriously not too good at the box office he's a name in geek circles but he's not really a name for the mainstream movie going public despite putting out extremely acclaimed movies like pan's labyrinth in that time too so it's not like you can sell an original property like pacific rim on his name like you could something like inception on Christopher Nolan's name. Which was a big gamble unto itself, yes. even though Christopher Nolan had dominated with The Dark Knight right. and was successful with Batman Begins before that, you're still talking about something that comes from his head and hasn't existed before, isn't based on a superhero or any sort of comic book mm -hmm. or even video game or television show. The same thing with Pacific Rim. And like you said, you're dealing with a lesser known name like Del Toro who has delivered on a certain level, right. not quite on the level of Inception, but you're talking about spending Inception money right. to make this movie. And it seems like the marketing wasn't really part of the budget because I didn't see much other than a few TV spots uh -huh. for Pacific Rim. This is, to me, a movie that needs those old school McDonald's deals where you have like 
plastic souvenir cups with your extra value menu items and you have to have video games and pillowcases and you have these robots and these monsters that are identifiable within the movie and that kids could probably latch onto and look up to going into the movie. I mean, yeah. this is the kind of movie where kids should have the action figure before they actually see the movie and have sort of like painted a picture in their head of what it's going to be like. But beyond that, aside from how this movie is performing at the box office, let's talk about how the movie performed as a movie. And we had great expectations going into it. I think that it was high atop our lists of most anticipated going into the summer and probably the overall year. Yep. And honestly, this movie knocked me on my ass. Yep, I agree. In a big way. It's incredible. Incredible. And I'm a big Spring Breakers fan, I know here on this show and I maintain that I think it's my favorite movie of the year Pacific Rim is giving it one hell of a run for its money as best of the year I haven't had this kind of summer blockbuster fun in a long time yeah it's incredible. Like you said, there are a few titles that come to mind when I think about this movie. As I was watching it, all I could think about was it's like Independence Day, Starship Troopers, Godzilla, Transformers, Metroid, and Voltron all rolled into <laughs> one just badass, kick-ass, <laughs> giant robot, giant monster fighting movie. I mean, it just has all of these elements of an action-adventure sci-fi blockbuster that you need. And some would call them tropes and archetypes, but these are things that you need for these movies to succeed. And when these things are done extremely well, in this case, they make for the most memorable movie-going experience in a theater that you will have and things that you will remember for the rest of your life. And this is on the level of the best blockbusters that I can remember. And... If we're talking about box office and how it's performing and how it might not be resonating with audiences worldwide or mainly in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because the worldwide grosses, they're kind of saving this movie. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of sad to me. It's kind of sad to me that people can't latch onto this stuff anymore, that they need existing properties. When, again, I mentioned movies, I mentioned a movie like Independence Day, which this movie reminded me mm -hmm. of a great deal. That's one of the best times I ever had. Of course, I was 12 years old when that came out, or 11 even. So a movie like that is going to have a huge effect on me. So it, I guess... I was able to pull the 11-year-old or 6-year-old out of my body and have that out-of-body experience while I was watching this, and I can enjoy it that same way. But even as a 28-year-old man-child, I'm able to just sit there and yell out loud when nobody else in the movie theater seems to be enjoying it the way I am. I was literally screaming out loud while this movie was playing out. Yeah. You know, there's something, I think, about the modern movie environment that makes it so that Marketing can't permeate the collective consciousness anymore like it did with something like Independence Day or even Emmerich's Godzilla remake. I remember just from a young age, those marketing campaigns sort of really being everywhere. You know, you had Godzilla marketing, you know, for example, I think there were bus signs that just said his foot is as big as this bus and stuff like that. And signs on buildings saying he's as tall as this building and whatnot. You know, you had Sony... I guess in that case, going all out to really push that stuff out there. And, and that's a terrible movie. But for whatever reason, the marketing for Pacific Rim didn't really connect with who it needed to connect with, which is kids, which is families. Because of all of the summer blockbusters, this is maybe, apart from the animated ones, one of the most appropriate for 
young boys, I'd say, or young children. I don't want to be discriminatory necessarily because of the way that it just activates something within your imagination. It's a work of extreme care and detail, and the amount of love on the screen for what Del Toro is doing is something that I haven't seen all year in one of these blockbusters. I think that if something holds this movie back for me, though admittedly you're not going to see Pacific Rim for this, to be fair, the characters are, are adequately sketched, and they don't need to be much more than no, adequately sketched. No, what more sketched. do you need than what they, they offer you here? But the movie compensates for that by making the world around them as detailed and intricate as possible and it feels lived in and it feels like after those opening after i guess the prologue where you're the world is established you hit the ground running and everything you get is perfectly set up expanded upon and just a hell of a ride it is but i don't think that it necessarily has to compensate i think that it is satisfactory on that level i like the characters i care about these characters and like you said we shouldn't discriminate from a gender standpoint because there's an incredibly strong female That's right. yeah. character in this movie who plays a prominent role in how things play out yeah. story wise and that she's played by Rinko Kikuchi who was nominated for an Oscar in the movie Babel back in 2006 look I know that there aren't celebrities in this yeah. movie necessarily, or A-list celebrities anyway. Few people recognize Charlie Hunnam. He looks like some average guy, and the guy there's a sort of an antagonistic figure in this movie who looks just like him. Yeah. So it's almost hard to distinguish who he is at times in this movie. And then you have Idris Elba, who I know a lot of people are familiar with via The Wire or Luther or some of the film work that he's done up to this point, but he's not necessarily a name actor that people can identify, and he's not someone who's going to sell a movie on his name alone, and Kikuchi certainly isn't either. And you throw in names like Charlie Day, who's probably the biggest star there is in this cast and who has a cult following of his own going into it, and Ron Perlman. This is a cast that was, I think, carefully selected. Mm -hmm. They selected people they knew could do these jobs and could play these characters and do them well, and they didn't rely. And I respect this movie for not necessarily relying on A-list stars to tell this story. Obviously, with a $190 million budget, I doubt they had much more money to spend sure. on A-list casting, but I liked the characters. And again, I, I like I liked how they set it up, how they set up Charlie Hunnam's character. Again, you talk about tropes and archetypes. Yes, it plays by a lot of the rules that have been firmly established by blockbusters over the years, and, it, and you pretty much know how the story is going to play out. But I think that once you land in those action set pieces, which take a while to get going, admittedly, after the first big sequence, mm -hmm. I liked the buildup personally, I and I like spending time with those characters and in that world and seeing how this worldwide kaiju attack was taking its toll on yeah. the government and the individuals and how this program was sort of taking the law into its own hand and fighting the battle that the U.S. government and the world governments were not really up for fighting anymore, at least with their dollars. That was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And once they hit the ocean and once they hit these cities and, again, these set pieces started happening, this movie just is relentless. The Hong Kong fight sequence oh is God. an all-timer. Oh, yeah. All-timer. And there are so many dimensions to it. Yeah. It's so layered because you have this whole thing starting out where you have a couple of Jaegers, these giant man-made robots that were built specifically to fight these skyscraper tall sea monsters that are attacking the earth from the depths of the ocean you have a couple of that sort of short circuit once one of the monsters right. pulls out this 
whammy of a weapon and you have another fight that starts within that and once this fight is over you have another set piece once they get to downtown hong kong where it just goes off the rails in the best way possible with the analog gypsy danger versus uh well a particularly nasty kaiju oh man i believe that's otachi and before that <laughs> it's leatherback right my two favorite and i know that the kaiju are probably hard to distinguish for a lot of the people out there i did some googling to find out specifically yeah. which ones they were but there are these character reveals within that fight of those kaiju yep. monsters that elicited those audible responses that i was talking about i did a fist pump yeah i'm well, not Lie. I was like, wow. Yeah, there's one in particular, too, <laughs> sort of like midway where the Kaiju gains an advantage on the Jaeger yep. that we totally didn't see coming. I was watching it for the second time with my brother in a theater down in Florida, and my brother, who's you know used to New York audiences who audibly react all the time, nobody in the theater said a word, but in the middle of that moment, my brother screams out, hey, no fair! <laughs> That's what kind of movie this is. Movies should prompt those kind of responses, and they don't tend to anymore. And I, yep. you know, I think that this is the best thing del toro's ever done personally I don't know about that oh man i like look i like blade 2 i like the hellboy movies you're probably a much bigger fan of pan's labyrinth than i am i would i would rank pan's labyrinth the devil's backbone and hellboy 2 over this man i don't hellboy 2 really yeah, i love hellboy 2 oh man but i i have only seen this once i really want to go see it again i want to take kathleen my wife to go see it because she hasn't seen it yet and yeah it's a great date movie <laughs> it's just i mean it's it just is. it is sincerely i mean sincerely after a summer where geek properties have come out and just belly flopped as far as i'm concerned one after another just happened again this past weekend for me. Pacific Rim being as successful as it was and engaging on not only like a super nerdy level for me, but on a just grand crowd-pleasing level besides that. I just couldn't believe that something came out that was that successful for me, you know, after a summer of meh, yeah, basically. My, my wife went with me to see it for my second time, and afterwards I said, what'd you think? She said it was one of the most amazing things I've seen yeah. in a long time. And I'm right with her. Yeah. And what I hope this does, it's made $225 million worldwide right now with that near $200 million budget. So it's turned a profit. Not much of one at this point, but I hope since it has turned a profit and it's proven that it can make money, I hope a sequel's on the table. I really do. And I was having a conversation with Ben Stark, friend of the show and FilmNerds.com contributor, and he asked me a question. He said, okay, now since you love this so much and this is this big robot movie you got when you didn't get it with the Transformers trilogy that Michael Bay has delivered so far. Would you rather have a Pacific Rim sequel made by Del Toro, or what if Paramount turned over the Transformers franchise to Del Toro oh, no. and no. said, here, reboot it? You can reboot it No, with what you have. I said, I want the Pacific Rim sequel. Yeah, Give me that. Because I love this universe that he's created, and I love the fact that the studio took a chance on something, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be so good. And what I hope this does is I hope it inspires other studios and i hope it inspires this studio itself to continue relying on guys like del toro to deliver yeah. and i hope that they give things like transformers and properties like it to guys like del toro to say okay handle with care i know you'll do it because if you give big blockbusters to these guys they're going to do it the way they would have wanted to see it all along. Well, I, I, I've had this conversation before, and, and I'm of two minds about this. I agree with you that these properties belong in the hands of these smart filmmakers, but at the same time, I also would rather see 
smart filmmakers do their own thing, something like Pacific Rim, rather than work with these pre-established properties. You know, it's one thing to say, man, I would love to see, I don't know, Nicholas Winding Refn do a Batman movie, when, frankly, with the money he's got coming in to make a Batman movie, he could probably make four or five movies of his own devising that I would probably much rather see. Well, you know on, what I mean? On like, the other side of that coin, though, you've got a guy like J.J. Abrams, and I know how you feel about Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh-huh. You liked the first Star Trek movie that he made, uh-huh. and you had a smart guy like him who obviously cared about it and wanted to do it right, and he did it right. And we're praying that he does the same thing with Star Wars, and there's only one way you can go with that franchise, and that's up. Right. So, like you said, you want smart people at the helm. You want them in the chair and controlling things. But again, you're right. It's a double-edged sword. I agree with you where it's like, well, in that case, we wouldn't necessarily get Pacific Rims. So now that Guillermo del Toro has established that he can make something like Pacific Rim, this is going to cue studios to say, okay, well, since he can do that on that scale, then let's give him this. Well, you know, and he's a strange case because he's a filmmaker who famously has a lot on his plate at all times. He's currently working on a gothic haunted house story called The Crimson Peak with a cast that includes Charlie Hunnam, Jessica Chastain, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Mia Wasikowska. Now, I hear that haunted house movie, Guillermo del Toro, that cast. I'm like, yeah, I'm there. All right. He's got a potential adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut with a screenplay to be written potentially by Charlie Kaufman. I want that. And then, of course, he's been working for many years on a big screen adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. I definitely want that. So, you know, it's unlikely that all of those will be made by Guillermo del Toro, but those are all things that I'm extremely interested in him doing. And Pacific Rim is great. Would I be interested in him shepherding a Pacific Rim franchise from here for the next seven or eight years? Uh, if it's at the expense of all of those movies, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they'd be fun. I'm sure they'd probably be as much fun as this one. But like you said, a double-edged sword because he's got so many other interesting projects potentially in the pipeline that, you know, I don't know that I want all of the filmmakers I like entering franchise territory. Especially if they're in position to start their own brand new franchises where we will want them to stick with those and we'll want people to jump on board with those brand new franchises if we're tired of these out here now, like you said, that have really underwhelmed this year in particular. But getting back to the movie itself, there's just so much they get right. Again, we talk about the big fights that are all-timers and are fantastic to watch and just visual spectacles. But the small stuff, too. I mentioned a lot of the characters that I really enjoyed. The scientist characters. Yeah, you have Charlie Day playing Rick Moranis. Yeah. Oh, and he's great. He's really funny. And the guy with the weird haircut from The Dark Knight Rises (laughs) as his co-part. How he's billed, too, I think. Yeah. No, he's great, too. They're, They're funny. They're really funny. Yeah, and everything funny. everything about them worked for me. I, I agree. And Ron Perlman, too, is this character, Hannibal Chow. With this fantastic hideout that is just set designed within an inch of its life, just wonderfully detailed. And the way he looks, he's like Mugatu from Zoolander, but he's awesome. <laughs> and it's just like... Everything with him is really funny yeah. and just really entertaining. His, his like little henchman guy yeah. who tries to sell some what kaiju bone powder yeah. to Charlie Day as he approaches the hideout. Yeah, he's fantastic too. And then you know you've got his boots that make a sound every time mm-hmm. you know he moves, and you can hear it even like during the dialogue scenes. And this dumb butterfly knife that yeah. comes back to haunt him later in the movie. Just a really well thought out, drawn out, and performed character. 
that belongs in these kinds of movies and have succeeded in these kinds of movies before. And you mentioned the other sidekick that was fantastic. And that, that all that stuff with Hannibal Chow, and I think I heard somebody mention, that all felt like the most del Toro-y stuff in the movie. It felt straight out of Hellboy 2 or yeah. Blade 2 or these other movies Did you that see the scene before. halfway through the credits? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did, and that's I don't fun. want to spoil it for anybody, but that's that, that's that's what you need in those kinds of movies, yeah, it is. and it's it's great. But yeah, and even like the little inner sub conflict you have with Raleigh and the Australian guy who looks just like him, yeah. and his dad, who's a great character. But that you know that that Australian character gets a great moment right at the end, mm-hmm. and then all throughout, yes, yeah. Elba is a super badass. Oh, he's great. And these, this movie is just built on those kind of big moments. Yeah. Del Toro knows this. He's a student of the game. You know, he knows these movies. He's a big fan of these movies. And again, when you give a big fan the keys to the ship or the keys to the car, good things are going to happen usually. And, you know, you can hear, oh, giant robots fighting monsters, ho-hum. What will this movie provide that I haven't seen before? Uh, it will provide visual coherence because Guillermo yep. del Toro can compose and hold a shot, yep. unlike many of his contemporaries. Yeah, and he can do it in night settings, too, yeah. and when it's raining, too. And that's those are complaints I've heard launched at this movie. Why does it have to be at night? Why does it have to be raining? And my question is, can you see it? Can you understand what's going on? I can this time, as opposed to yeah. other movies in the past. And obviously, we would center on the Michael Bay Transformers movies, where it's just completely incoherent. Yeah. And you have these similar giant machines fighting in these metropolitan areas, and you can't make out anything that's happening. And this, I had no trouble. I had no trouble. And you've got a ton of iconic images and just great scenes and inventive shots I mean, if it sounds like we're just sitting here going like, oh, and it was awesome yeah, when this well, happened, and it was awesome when this happened, well, it, that's the sort of fervor that this movie inspires for the open-minded viewer. And I feel like if you're going to see a summer blockbuster, this is the sort of summer blockbuster that hits all the notes that you want summer blockbusters to hit. It's sort of the archetypal summer blockbuster, the platonic ideal of this sort of movie. Well, you know, I mentioned all those movies that it reminded me of, and mm-hmm. it feels like all of those sort of rolled into one, but something I would tell people if they asked me, should I see this, or what do you think about it? I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And that's really all you can ask for from this kind of movie. Absolutely. At this point, being released in the middle, just the dead middle of summer, when, again, we've seen we've seen so much that has underwhelmed us, and we're sort of waiting around for something to impress us and sort of thinking that, well, I guess summer's going to end without anything. And I guess it's just going to be one of those years for the books where we just say, well, it was just kind of underwhelming. Nothing really sticks out. This came and just whacked us in the face yep. out of nowhere. And even though we were anticipating it, I did not anticipate loving it as much as I do. Yeah. And I'd see it for a third time in theaters, too. I'll see it again. People need to see this movie on the big screen. Yeah, I agree. And I fear that it's going to leave soon. I mean, it's seventh on the list of box office performers right now. And it's, what, second, third week of release? It's a dismal dismal state of affairs it is but while it's in theaters see it and it's there for now i have a feeling it'll be here for at least two more weeks maybe so folks take advantage this is worth it so moving on what's on dvd Corey? released today nothing that's worth concerning yourself over the new gi joe movie gi joe retaliation which i did not find to be an improvement from the first movie but i'm one of the few who likes the first movie pretty well also the sort of semi mumblecore 
horror thriller Black Rock directed by Katie Azelton off of a screenplay by her husband Mark Duplass. I didn't find that very effective. So two things not worth checking out and last week was a pretty down week too with Danny Boyle's Trance being the only real high profile release and I have kind of mixed feelings about that one. Well, you had mentioned The Devil's Backbone. Uh-huh. That is now available on Criterion is it out today? as of today. Oh, my God. I got to go get that. It's on my queue for sure, and I can't wait to see it. Is and Barnes & Noble still doing, doing their uh, 50% off sale? I didn't know that they were doing it. They Have were, they been lately? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I so I got to go out. stop by and see if that's still happening and if The Devil's Backbone is available. I haven't seen it. Can't wait to. I have Kronos at yeah, home right now. That's a good one. On loan. So, yeah, I can't wait to watch that. Opening in theaters this week, Two Guns with Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. The Smurfs 2, in limited release, one of Corey's favorites of the year so far, The Spectacular Now. Yeah, and I really hope that that comes around here. It obviously won't this weekend, but maybe in the coming weeks it'll expand and get an audience that it deserves because it's excellent. Check us out on aspectradioshow.com. Find us on twitter.com slash aspectradio, facebook.com slash aspectradio. We're on iTunes, so find us with a quick search or click the link on our blog. Be sure to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you'll find a fun new podcast featuring filmnerds.com collaborators, Matt Scalici, Ben Stark, Craig Hamilton, my brother Graham, and myself talking for about a good hour about Steven Spielberg's 1941. You had an hour's worth of stuff to say about 1941? We found it, man. Yeah. Yeah, so check that out. It's good stuff. And time now for parting shots. And now, Dick Sargent weighs in on Steven Spielberg's 1941. I just thought it was excellent. I really, really like the part where Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen are talking about going in that plane and the innuendo with the plane parts representing the genitalia. I just thought that was really fantastic. This is Graham Flanagan for Film Nerds in New York. I had the pleasure of seeing Pacific Rim about a week ago at the Rave Theater in Destin, Florida with my brother and fellow film nerd Ben Flanagan, his wife Tess, and our dad Steve Flanagan, who jokingly referred to Pacific Rim as an installment of Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And he wasn't far off, except it was robots versus monsters. And I have to say, I was really impressed by the effects work and the storytelling that Guillermo del Toro delivered. My only complaint about the movie is that most of, if not all of the battles, took place at night. And I understand that that was done so that the effects artists could have an easier time hiding details. There's one sequence where I believe the striker robot is shown fighting a monster in daylight. It's shot in sort of a YouTube video, Man on the Street style, where it unloads a series of rockets from his chest, and that was the only time that we actually saw some combat during daylight. So hopefully in the sequel, they will give us a nice daytime battle. As one of my colleagues up here who works in animation and graphic design said, one reason that Oblivion is underrated is because most of its effects-driven scenes do take place in daylight, which prevented its artists from hiding under the cover of darkness when designing their effects. That being said, I had a blast in Pacific Rim. I can't wait to see it again. And my favorite part was when Gypsy Danger, after being flown up to the stratosphere by one of the monsters, takes out its sword and decapitates it. One of the absolute coolest moments of the year. And at this point, I don't see how anything's going to unseat it for best scene of the year. For Film Nerds and Aspect Radio, this is Graham Flanagan in New York. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Richardson. And until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening.